Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 12 this morning if we get there. We're going to be in chapter 12 this morning. Um, rarely do I do anything like this, but, um, you know, one, I think just the Spirit of God is thick here today, and I sense that through some of the worship music that we just sung a moment ago, but the Lord's kind of been impressing something on my heart, too, that I feel like I need to share with you, not necessarily as a segue into our sermon, because this is purely off the cuff of my pants, but um, I do feel like maybe we need to think about this. James chapter 4, verse 14, you don't have to turn there, you can write it down. I'm going to read chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, but I'm going to focus real quick on verse 14. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So James here, he reminds you and I that my life and your life is but a vapor. He essentially says that it, it vanishes. It's, it appears for a little while, but then it's gone. And some of you who have experienced the loss of loved ones, you know exactly what this is like. Like at one minute, they were here. And the very next minute, they were gone. And this is a reminder to really all of us that the little span of time that we have here on this earth ought to be used and leveraged to make the most impact that we can, not for our own selves, but for the glory of God. That you're not promised tomorrow. You know, Mr. Steve, I hope that you don't mind me calling you out here, but Mr. Steve shared with me today that this past week he lost his mother. And my heart hurt for him because he lost his mother. And I guarantee if you talk to Mr. Steve, he'll tell you all the memories that he cherishes and relishes that were able to be made with his mom. Many of you know that last Monday night, um, what were you doing at home? You were celebrating last Monday night. What were you celebrating? Georgia. Georgia. They won the national championship, didn't they? Um, do you know what the football team is doing this morning? They're grieving the loss of an offensive lineman who was killed last night at 2.30 in the morning. Another staff member of their team who was also killed in that same car crash. And then two others that are fighting for their lives. Life is but a vapor. It's here for a little while, and then it vanishes. And you and I, we have an opportunity, while there's still breath in our lungs, to make the absolute most of the life that God has given us. On Thursday afternoon, there were at least eight families across the states of Alabama and Georgia that woke up, and we know at least eight people who vanished through the tornadoes that passed through our two states. A mom and her five-year-old son headed back home in Lake Jackson, not to make it, because a tree would fall and collapse in their van. And you know these stories, and you hear these stories, and you're like, man, your heart hurts for them. It's moved for them. And, and one, I need to say this too. I am awfully proud of our church. 
you know, we didn't have time to prepare for disaster relief. You don't get time to prepare for that. But you guys have responded so generously to what has happened to our community here in McDonough, also to Butts County, also to Spalding County, and the things that have happened there. Um, and many of you, you have been cutting down trees, you've been helping families get back on their feet, you've been repairing roofs, you've been preparing all sorts of things to make life kind of go back to at least some extent of normalcy um, after these storms. And I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart to you for that. You've opened your homes to families that didn't have anywhere to go. As people were without water and power, you've opened your homes to them so that they might be able to take a shower and get a good night's rest. And so many of you have stepped up to the plate and have cared and provided in so many different ways. And I do want you to know that I am extremely thankful for the way that our congregation has responded to that. I told our team when I first got here a little less than three years ago now, I told our team, one of the things I hope that our church becomes is our church becomes a sort of a, a first response team to the things that happen in our city. Like if, if something happens in our town, in our county, I hope that they'll think about us first, that they'll solicit our prayers, they'll solicit our you know, help to come alongside of them to do things that maybe they don't have the resources to do. And I think slowly but surely, we're starting to turn the pendulum in that direction. And I do want you guys to know that it's not because of me. This is because of the generosity that you display each and every day. You take your dash that stands between two dates, the date that you were born and the date that you will perish, and you're making the absolute most with that dash that you can make. Now, some of you, you're here today, and if you're honest, you're living life today without absolutely any purpose at all. I mean, everything that you are chasing is fleeting. You're trying to climb the corporate ladder, and that's just fleeting. You, you, you essentially feel like your life is stuck in mud, and you're spinning your tires, and as you're pushing the accelerator to the floor, you're just not going anywhere. And some of you are here, and you're looking in all the wrong places to find the hope and the fulfillment and the satisfaction that your heart longs for. And I want you to know today that the only place that you're going to find anyone who will fully satisfy and fully fulfill you is when you stop looking at the things of this world and you turn your attention towards God. Because Jesus does save, and he wants to save you. In fact, he tells us in his word that he wishes that none should perish, but all have eternal life, so he does still save, and he does long for you to have a personal, intimate relationship with him. And quite frankly, it breaks his heart when he sees you chasing sin rather than his son. And I hope that we'll be a congregation that gets serious about confession and repentance. We'll become a congregation that looks in the eyes of God and wants to do everything we can, not only in our humanity, but also through the power of the Spirit, everything we can to be a pleasure, a pleasurable aroma that lifts to the heavens. I want him to look down on us and smile upon us because he sees men and women who want to faithfully follow him. So church, I'm reminded today that life is but a vapor. And for some of you, you needed to hear that. Jody McKinnon is in here on the back. He, he came to me before church started today, and he was just telling me, man, the Lord just kind of has shown me lately that what I've done in the past has been forgiven. And when he says forgiven, that means I got a clean slate. And whatever I have left of my life, I want to use it to serve and to live for him. Man, what a beautiful testimony. And there are some of you, based on hardships and hurts of the past, 
you've been so paralyzed that you're not fulfilling the purpose in which God has put you here to fulfill. And I want to encourage you today to finish your race strong. I don't care if you're 18 or if you're 88. Finish your race strong. As long as God has put breath in your lungs, he has you here for a particular reason, a particular purpose for such a time as this to fulfill the mission of God and to display his glory before a watching world. I want to encourage you to do just that today, all right? So now that I've done all of that, i got 20 minutes to fit a 40-minute sermon in, so hopefully you'll be patient with me today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 12 this morning. One of the things that we've been talking about throughout this series is what does a life of a follower of Jesus actually look like? And we've told you that there are really five characteristics of a disciple that we are shooting for here at Eagles Landing. Now, I've told our leadership this, and I want to tell you this too. These are not things that we create like a checklist, okay? I want to get better at life in Christ, and I want to get more generous, and I want to start serving, okay? And we start checking these boxes and thinking that we're arriving, if you will, because we're starting to do more and more of these things. That's not how we approach this. Instead, as we grow more aware of who God is, and we grow more aware of what Jesus has done for us in our place, these are, these are basically natural fruits that we should see spring out of our lives because of our awareness of the gospel of Jesus. So these five characteristics are not a checklist. They're just really fruits or evidences of us growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first one we said is life in Christ. We talked about what this looks like. like this is the foundational part of it all. Like, apart from Christ, you're nothing. We talked about what it means to be a new creation in Christ Jesus, and we kind of equated this. I didn't really say this analogy, but this is essentially what we were saying, is apart from Christ, you're like a dead man in his coffin. Okay, You have no appetite for the things of God. You have no desires for the things of God. But when you are in Christ, when your life is fully surrendered to him, all of a sudden you're like, you're, you're like a dog who has a stake being waved in front of his, his face. Like you, are, you pant for the things of God. You want the things of God. You want, you're not satisfied unless you get the things of God. And that's what the life of Christ looks like. There's a, an awareness and a hunger and a thirst within you that wants more of him. So the checklist would be we need to start reading our Bible and we need to start praying because those are some of the practicalities of what it means to hunger and to thirst for the things of God. But I'm not necessarily saying that. What I'm saying is that we desire him so badly that we can't fathom the thought of not being in his word. We can't fathom the thought of not spending time in prayer with him. That's what the life of Christ looks like. Now, Jesse did a phenomenal job last week, did he not? Talking about what it looks like for us to exist in community. That's the second characteristic, life in community. As the people of God, we are supposed to be, um, we, we belong to God, but we also belong to one another. Is essentially what Jesse taught us. And, and where does that come from? It comes from the very essence of God himself, right? That God is a communal God. Right there in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we see that word Elohim. That word Elohim is a plural word, and it's plural because God exists in, in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So even from the creation of the world, we see a God who existed in three persons. And we too are supposed to personify, because we're image bearers of his, to personify the life that he lived. We, we, we exist best when we're in community with each other. And he talked about some of the nuts and bolts of what that looks like. And we talked about life and community. Today we're going to be talking about life and generosity. But what are we after? What's the real goal throughout this entire series? I told you on January the 1st, the very first Sunday, our goal is to help you take your next step in your walk with Jesus. 
That as you are on this journey, pursuing the life of Christ, become more like him, we just want to help you take the next step in doing that. Some of you, the first step you need to take is becoming a believer. Saying, hey, listen, I want to surrender my life to Christ. I want to set the foundation and start to follow him. Within that same concept, some of you, you know that Bible study and prayer, these, these have been things you've neglected in your spiritual walk with God, so you've, you've kind of felt like you're in a desert, or you, maybe you feel distant between you and God, and that distance is there because you haven't been spending time with him. So your next step is to start spending time with him, developing disciplines. We've got a, a, a Bible reading plan that we make available for you so that you can read through the Bible with us over the next year or two. Um, we, we want to help you grow in your knowledge of what prayer is and, and how you can begin to commune with God on a daily basis in a real practical way. But then some of you, your next step isn't that. Maybe your next step, you are a follower of Jesus. You're doing fairly decent in your Bible study and your prayer life. Your next step is to get in a life group, to start living life with the people of God. You belong to God, but now it's about belonging to each other. Maybe it's just about joining the church. Man, when it's time for me to take my next step and become a part of the family of God. And today what we're going to be talking about is what does it look like as children of God to, to not only surrender to him as our Lord and Savior, but also to surrender to him everything that he gives us. And he gifts us, if I can say it that way. Our time that he gives us, how do we steward that in a way that honors him, the talents that he gives us, the skills, the, the passions of our life, how do we use those in a way that honors him, and even the finances that he gives us, how do we use those to be stewarded in a way that honors him. So that's what we're after today. I'm going to read in uh, Luke chapter 12, verses 32 through 34, but I want to say this because you do know we're talking about life of generosity today, and I know that that is not the most pleasant topic of conversation in the walls of the church, but listen to this. When we talk about a life of generosity, we are talking about one of the most pervasive idols of the human heart. And I hope we understand that, that money really is indeed the root of all evil. We've been told that, we've heard that all of our lives, but it's true. We're talking about one of the most pervasive idols in the human heart. Our natural inclination when we talk about these things is to put a wall up our natural inclination is to stiff arm the conversation and say, hey, I'm just not going to take part in that. Our natural inclination is to take this time to take a nap, right? And to say, I really don't need anyone speaking into how I'm to handle my finances. But what I want you to understand this morning is that it's more than just about, it's, it's more than just the fiscal stuff we're talking about, okay? I'm also talking about how you live your life, living your life generously, so that God can use it to make an impact in the watching world. But we're going to talk a lot about finance as well. So in Luke chapter 12, verse 32 through 34. All right, clock is ticking, let's go. It says this, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Very simple passage of scripture. For some of you, you are familiar with this text of scripture. For others of you, you're hearing this text for the very first time. But there are three things within this text that I want to show you this morning. The first one is this. 
Generosity, no matter if you're living your life generously or giving generously, generosity begins with trusting God. It's a really simple point, a really simple approach to life. Generosity in all of our lives begins when we start to trust God. I love how Jesus begins this text of scripture with a command. The command is fear not. He's telling us what to do. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You know what fear not means? Fear not simply means don't be afraid. It means trust me. Just trust me. Don't be afraid. You have no reason to worry. Fear not, little flock. And then he says, first, your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What would God, what would God, why would God lead with this command? Like, why would God lead out of the gate by saying, fear not? I mean, why would Jesus tell us not to be afraid when it comes to our money or when it comes to our possessions? You, you realize here in this text of scripture, Jesus is talking to followers of Christ. He's talking to his disciples. These are common, ordinary men. These are men who don't have a lot. If you study their lives, you're going to learn that they don't have just a plethora of extras in their life. Like, they don't hoard stuff like some of you do, okay? Like, they're not, they don't have an excess of things that they will never use that they're holding on to because they might need them in 10 years. Like, that's just not who these men were. They didn't have many possessions. But listen, God knows that when money is tight, it becomes difficult for his people to fully trust and follow him. So that's why he's talking to them like this, and that's why I'm sharing it with you. When, when things are tight, it becomes a little bit more difficult for us to fully trust him. In fact, God knows that our natural, might I add, sinful inclination is to begin to turn inward. And when we turn inward, what do we do? We start to take control. Well, God, I know that you want to be in control of that, but I see what I actually have. i got to control what I actually have. And I can't really faithfully follow you because I don't know where you're going to lead me. That's not trusting him. That's the opposite of what it means to trust him. But here's what I want you to hear this morning. We amplify Christ when we fully trust him with our little. We amplify Christ before a watching world when we fully trust him even with our Little, see, God uses our faithfulness, even in moments that it doesn't make sense, to put his glory on full display. Some of you have a testimony that will vouch for that. Man, I've seen God, when I'm faithful with my little, I've seen God do acts of wonders. Kayla and I were out in San Diego spending time with Jimmy Steele and the church planting team out there, and we went to dinner with them one night, and on the way back to the church, Sean Robinson and Adrian Robinson, who were some good friends of ours back in Wake Forest, who are now a part of their church planting team and their staff out there, Sean said to us, you know what, man, it is expensive to live out here. In fact, we weren't going to get to see our family on the East Coast for Christmas because we just, we're part-time. Like, we don't make the, the kind of money. They literally live in an apartment for free through apartment life. They just have to do some work for that apartment. And he was just saying, we just don't make the funds, the necessary funds that we need to be able to spend $2,500 to fly to the East Coast to see our families. But you know what has been so incredible about this? 
is that even when we don't make much, God has provided for every single need, and we have also been able to fly to the East Coast because someone just abruptly writes us a check and says, I don't know why you need this, but here's $2,500, and we're thinking, holy cow. And they're walking through this season of their life. They were sharing with us. We prayed with them. They're walking through this season of their life where they're just overwhelmed with God's goodness and the way that he continues to provide for them even when they don't want to give generously to other people because they only have very few resources. And he was just telling us, we've learned that in our faithfulness, God will continue to be faithful to us. And it's such a beautiful thing, like they're amplifying Christ before a world that's watching and they're doing this even with their little. Listen, you can be generous and not trust God, but you can't trust God and not be generous. And some of us need to hear that and understand that. Like you can be a generous person and have absolutely no faith or trust in God at all. But you cannot be a true, genuine follower of Christ who has all of his faith surrendered to the Lord Jesus and not become a generous man or woman. See, when we're not afraid, when we trust God, there are a few things that we reveal to the world. The first thing that we reveal to the world when we fully trust God, when we fear not, is this. Our greatest pleasure is God. Our greatest treasure is God, the good shepherd. Notice how the text says, fear not, little flock. Isn't that cool that he calls me and you little flock? Well, if we're the sheep, who's the shepherd? That wasn't rhetorical. He's the shepherd, is he not? This is a reference to to Psalm chapter 23. Now, I know that many of you read that psalm at funerals, but it actually has application far beyond just the funeral arrangement. What does it say there? The Lord is my shepherd, what? I shall not want. That doesn't mean that the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want him as my shepherd. (laughs) That would be just the opposite of what it means. It means the Lord is my shepherd, and if he is my shepherd, then I have all I will ever need in him. I shall not want one other thing from this world because I have what I need, and what I need is him. And here he's referring to us as a little flock. We put on display before the world when we trust him with our little, when we don't fear We're putting on display the very fact that he truly is our treasure. He's a good shepherd. But there's another thing. Not only is he our greatest treasure, is God our good shepherd, but our greatest treasure is God, the good father. He's a good father. It says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is the beauty of the text of scripture, because he's saying not only are you little sheep and he's your shepherd, but you're also little children, and he's your good father. So we understand this really when we look at it in context. Look at verse 30. It says, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. What things are all the nations in the world seeking after? They're seeking after the necessities of life. These are the things we have to have in order to live. They're seeking after the necessities of life. And then he says, and your father knows that you need them. Jesus is teaching his disciples and he says this. He says, he actually begins in verse 22 when he tells them not to be anxious about things. Why why shouldn't we be anxious, the disciples might ask. And he says, because you're a child of the Father. And because you're a child of the Father, the Father knows exactly what you need, and he knows exactly when you need it. And he's not going to fail you, leave you, forsake you. He's going to be there to provide for you as a child and a father. And for some of us, we have to realize that. When we approach God as a good father to his children, we're showing the world he's our greatest treasure. 
We're showing the world who Christ is. I need to tell you this, though. You have to beware of this. Do not prescribe to God the things you think you need. Because you and I are not experts at what we need. We go to God often telling him things we need that we really don't need, that we just want. And if he would provide these things that we say we need, our life would be more fulfilled. And what he's looking at us and saying is this, well, am I not enough? Why do you need that to be more satisfied? That promotion's not going to make me any greater. That promotion isn't going to do anything between our relationship. Like, you have all you need in me. So we put on display when we trust him, when we fear not with our finances, we show the world that our greatest treasure is God, our good father. The third one is our greatest treasure is God, the good king. So he's a good shepherd. He's a good father. He's a good king. It says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. There's no kingdom absent from its king. The fact that there's a king is what makes the kingdom a kingdom. And what Jesus is trying to show us here is that only the king has the authority to entrust anyone else to the kingdom. Because the king reigns. The king rules. The king is sovereign. The king sits on the throne. The king's the one who makes the final decision. And what the king says is what people do. He's showing us he is the king, and the kingdom belongs to him, and that he can do whatever he wants whenever he wishes. So listen to what Luke is actually saying. He's saying your shepherd protects and provides for you. Your father, he loves you. He's tender and compassionate towards you. He guides, and he continues to provide for you. Your king, your king reigns, and he's powerful, and he's sovereign, and he owns it all. So when you walk through a tough time financially, remember that your God is a good king and this good king reigns forever and ever and ever and he's sovereign over your situation, he's sovereign over your circumstance and he will not leave you without being faithful to you. That's who he is. Luke says when we embrace these truths about who God is, then we'll understand why our generosity becomes a form of worship. You know why some of us approach that little segment in our worship services where we take the offering as literally just a time where we put money in a bucket rather than a time of worship? Some of us do that because we don't fully understand the extent of what we're doing in that, that little stint of time. It's worship because we're reminding ourselves and God who he is, that he's the owner, he's the king, he's the one who reigns, and who we are. We're the ones who are called just to relinquish control and let him do the things that he ultimately wants to do. So we mind the world when we don't fear, when we trust him. We're we're showing the world that our greatest treasure is God, the good king. Fourth, our greatest treasure is God, the most generous giver. The most generous giver says this, fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You notice what Luke didn't say? He did not say you purchase the kingdom, you lease the kingdom, you borrow the kingdom. He didn't say you rent the kingdom. He said God gives you the kingdom. Do you know why? Because he's a God of infinite wealth. He owns it all. And he gives a portion of that to you. He's not in need of our payments. It belongs to him. Anything we give, by the way, church belongs to him already anyway if we read 1 Corinthians 4 7 correctly so Jesus God he's a generous God who has enough to cover every single need in the world my need your need 
the needs of people in Africa, the needs of people in Asia, the needs of people in South America. He knows every single need of every single individual, and he has enough resources to provide every need for all those people. That's who he is. So when we don't fear, when we trust God, we're showing the world that our greatest treasure is God, the most generous giver. But fifth and finally, our greatest treasure is God, the source of our joy. The short source of our joy. It says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to, notice that word, good pleasure, to give you the kingdom. This is where some of us miss it. God finds pleasure in giving his children good gifts. He finds pleasure in that. Now he gets to quantify what is good. Not you, not me. He gets to quantify what's good. But if he gave it to you, it's a good gift for you. Sometimes we have to figure out why it is good. This reminds me of Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. It says, if you who are evil desire to give your kids good things, if you're evil and you're a father who desires to give your kids good things, and how much more should God desire to give good gifts to you? What's the point of all of this? He's saying, I find pleasure and delight in meeting your needs. Sometimes the best thing we can do is position God in a way where he isn't forced to act. That's manipulative. But we position him in a way where he can act because he's God. And we get to see that he puts his glory on full display. Last thing I want to say about this is generosity is trusting that God can do more with your 90% than you can do with your 100%. Now, I know that I use those statistics, those percentages, based on what we know as a tithe, okay? And I don't think the tithe is a New Testament command. In fact, I think that's the base of all giving, that we should at least give 10%. That's how I feel about that. We can have a whole discussion later about that another day, another time. But for the sake of those who understand the tithe, since it's a base for me and some of you it's a rule, so since that's the case, God can do much more with your 90% than you can do with your 100%. You know what that means? If, you are, if you're given $10 by God and you give one of those dollars back to him, he can do more with the nine that you have than you could do with the 10 that you kept. So God just wants us to be faithful. And when we're faithful, he's, he's, he gets opportunity to put his glory on display. So generosity it begins with trusting God. Secondly, this morning, generosity leads to heavenly vision. It leads to heavenly vision. It says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Listen closely, I'll read this again, but listen closely to what Luke is saying. The way you provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, and the way you gather treasure in the heavens that does not fail, is by selling your possessions to meet the needs of other people. In other words, he is encouraging us to have a heavenly vision. He wants us to be eternally minded. The best investment that you can make is not your 401k. It's not stocks. The best investment that you can make is in eternal, heavenly things where no moth can destroy. Things that don't rust, don't decay, they last for all eternity. Some of you gave specifically to allowing a student to go on winter retreat. Or you're going to get an opportunity to give specifically to kids going to Camp 323 or kids going to summer camp. Phenomenal investment. 
We had two girls from our church who were visiting our church that Kayla and I met. One Sunday after church, we invited them to go on the winter retreat with us. Do you know that both of those ladies went with us? And do you know that both of those ladies gave their life to Christ while we were there? Eternal investment. You want to put your life and, and treasures into the hands of a place that will actually use them to make investments in eternity. When we store our treasures in the heavens, listen, we simultaneously are maximizing our joy in God. The reason you clapped is because you were grateful and thankful that people came to Christ. So by giving and people coming to Jesus, and we get to watch them hopefully get baptized one day, you're investing in heavenly things, and it brings you joy to be able to do that. Third and finally, generosity transforms the heart. So generosity begins with trusting God. It leads to heavenly vision. And third and finally this morning, generosity transforms the heart. It says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What we need to understand this morning is that greed and generosity are enemies. They're not friends, okay? I used to say it like this, that greed and generosity don't sleep in the same bed. But then some people thought, well, which one of us are generous and which one of us are greedy, okay? That's not what I meant by that. What I'm saying is greed and generosity, they're enemies. They don't get along, okay? Here's the beauty of this, though. Even though greed and generosity are enemies, one of them is your master. One of them is your master. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasure is in the heavens where God is, then that is where your heart will be also. This is, reminds me of Luke chapter 16, verse 13. It says this, no servant can serve two masters. Y'all have heard this, right? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. So Luke is telling us, you can't have two masters. If you love this one, then you hate this one. If you love this one, then you hate this one. Like, you can't have two. Do you know what he's talking about in context there? He tells us right there at the end of verse 16. You cannot serve God and money. You can't serve God and also be living your life for money, for wealth. You can't do both. So how do we know which master we serve? I want you to think about this, by the way. To serve money is to cherish money and pursue the benefits that money can provide. That's what it means. I serve money when I'm using money and, and, and when I'm cherishing money and pursuing the things, the benefits that it can buy. To serve God is to cherish God and to pursue the benefits that only God can provide. That's one of the difference. So how do we know which master we serve? It says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. One of the most common misconceptions of this verse is that we get it backwards. We think that whatever we treasure, we'll give to. It's just the opposite. Whatever we give to is what we'll begin to treasure. In other words, our giving leads our heart. Our heart doesn't lead our giving. You follow that? We start giving to something, and I, this isn't me. You can get mad at me. This is Luke, all right? Like, this is Bible. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. That's what he says. Wherever your money goes, your heart is sure to follow it. So what you give to, Luke is saying, is what you love. What you give to is what you love. If you want to fall deeper in love with God, 
you have to start giving to him. It begins there, and then the heart begins to follow. If you want to know what you really believe about God, the only or one way to do this is to see where you give. You know, church, I'll conclude my time with this statement. The greatest picture of generosity is Jesus. If you and I really do surrender our lives to him, Jesus isn't going to have to twist our arm to get us to read the word. This is true. If our lives are surrendered to him, and he's really the king and he's the ruler of our lives, he's not going to have to twist our arm to spend time with us. If Jesus really is the love of our soul, and we're devoted to him, and we're surrendered to him, He's not going to have to twist our arm and try to convince us that we need to be among God's people in a local church, living life with them, doing community with them. These are all natural byproducts of what it means to follow Jesus. If Jesus, if our lives are really surrendered to him, think about it. He's not going to have to try to convince us and manipulate us that we should give. He's not going to have to try to convince us next week that we should start serving? No, if your life is surrendered, that's the base, then he controls everything else. And these are things that he says that we ought to be doing as fruits of growing, aware of who he is and what he's done for us. So the greatest picture of generosity is Jesus. We're going to talk about this next week in Mark 10.45. It tells us there, Jesus does, I did not come into the world to be served. He says, I came into the world to serve. And I came to give my life as a ransom for many. If the greatest picture of generosity is Jesus, then we look at the life of Jesus and we see that the most generous gift ever given to humanity was given by the hands of God when he sent his son into the world to do for me and to do for you what we were incapable of doing for ourselves. It required a sinless, a perfect, spotless sacrifice for our sins to be atoned for and paid for, for us to be reconciled back to God. And Jesus was the gift that did just that. And if that's the generosity of God through the person of Jesus, then guess what life you and I are called to emulate? There are no limits to how we should give our lives away to a watching world. And when we say with our lives and even with our giving, Jesus is all about you and it's all surrendered to you, that's when God and his glory can begin to be put on full display before a watching world. And by the way, we would also become some of the most attractive people on the planet because it's so polar opposite to the way that the world responds to things. So church, I want to encourage you today to ask yourself one question. Are you fully surrendered to Jesus? Does he really reign over your life? And if you answer that with a resounding yes, then let me follow up with this question. Is that reflected in the way that you live and give?